the mother ran into the bedroom when she heard her seven-year-old son screaming. She found his two-year-old sister pulling his hair. The mom gen gently released the little girl's grip and said comfortingly to the, to the boy, uh, there, there, she didn't mean it. She doesn't know that it hurts to pull hair. He nodded in, in acknowledgement, and, and the mom left the room. While she started back down the hall, she heard the, the two-year-old girl screaming. Rushing back in, she said, what happened? The little boy replied, she knows now. I, uh, I, I read um, a lot of different things, but I found three similar articles. And uh, they're a lot longer, but I'm going to read a, a little bit of each of them. Because I, I think there's something that's uh, important about these. Uh, the first one's from 2007. It's an article called All the Rage by Andrew Santella, and he observes that anger is the prominent emotion in American life. Our politics is dominated by angry rhetoric. Cases of road rage are increasingly common. The shelves of local bookstores are full of books explaining both the benefits and the dangers of anger. In fact, many of the books are simply wrath-lit, which is public, published written rants on various topics. Peter Wood, in his book A Bee in the Mouth, writes that a sure sign of America's problem with anger is the tone of its politics. For the first time in our political history, declaring absolute hatred for one's opponent has become a sign not of sad excess, but of good character. Now, that was 2007. In 2013, there was a USA Today study, said the share of Americans who report, report feeling angry or irritable has surged from 50% just two years ago to 60% today. A Harvard Medical School study from 2012 found that nearly two-thirds of American teens admit to having anger attacks involving the destruction of property, threats of violence, or engaging in violence. It's, he said, but we're not only angry, we're also afraid of one another. For four decades, a gut-level ingredient of democracy, trust in the other fellow, has been quietly draining away. These days, only a third of Americans say most people can be trusted, Half, half felt that way in 1972. So 2007, 2013, then a 2020 article said this, Americans are angry. <laughs> Just catching on. The country erupted into the worst civil unrest in decades after the death of George Floyd and anger about police violence and the country's legacy of racism is still running high. At the same time, we're dealing with anger provoked by the coronavirus pandemic anger at public officials because they've shut down parts of society, or anger because they aren't doing enough to curb the virus, anger about being required to wear a mask, or anger toward people who refuse to wear a mask, anger at anyone who doesn't see things the right way. 2007, 2013, 2020, people are angry. For, for teenagers, I mean, think about this. Think about uh, the college graduates coming up here, or high school graduates. This is the norm. This is all they've ever seen, and we think, oh, it's, it's bad. It's not, never been worse in 2007. Same thing in 2013. Same thing in 2020. Anger is here to stay, and it may continue to get worse. Now, we're going through our Seven Deadly Sin series, and uh, every week it seems that I have to, uh, I don't have to, but I feel the need to talk about the word we're using and then, and then talk about how there's actually a different word that maybe would have been a better word to use. Uh, and that's just because, well, English, uh, the Bible is, uh, wasn't written in English, and when we translate things, and sometimes the most common word is used, even if it's not necessarily the best word. 
Well, anger itself is a natural response. It's an emotion. You can't help it. I mean, it's a feeling. You, you, we get sad. It's, no one would say it's bad that you're, that you're sad. Um, we, we're happy. We, we get upset about things. We get angry. Now, the sin is actually the sin of wrath. Uh, when we lose our, our self-control because of our anger, uh, we're, that's when we're at our worst. We're very destructive. We know this. In anger, anger terrible things are said. Um, actions are committed. Relationships are ruined. And sometimes we don't know what's coming. We get mad. We say something. We do something. Well, that relationship's probably ruined or at least uh, on hold for, for 10 years or 20 years. Just in one moment, a uh, little uh, loss of self-control through anger. It's not anger. Um, it's the self-control, which really is, is wrath would be the better word. Anger can be an emotion uh, that's very positive to have. I mean, there are times when we should feel angry. When someone we uh, are loved is hurt, we probably our natural response would be anger. It's not, not necessarily it should, it's just neutral. You're mad because, or you're upset because something happened. Yet, anger is a very dangerous thing. Because when we're motivated by anger, I think the natural thing for us is to have a self-centered view. I want it my way. Now, wrath can be defined as uncontrolled feelings of anger, rage, or even hatred. Wrath usually comes in the form of revenge. It leads to violence and hate and bitterness. These articles about our country, where we were 15 years ago, um, where we were, I can't do, nine years ago and, and two years ago, those articles probably all could have been written yesterday, just, just the same. I mean, really. Internally, uh, we may have anger at times. And it, leads, it can lead to self-destructive behaviors. Um, we may be hurting ourselves and not even realize it. Uh, there are things that we can get angry about just, just because we don't even know why we're mad. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes maybe, uh, I don't know if anyone else gets this, I, get, I just get irritable, um, where it doesn't matter what's going on. If someone's talking, I just don't want to hear them talk, and, and it just kind of makes me feel like I'm mad, but I'm, like, I'm not mad. I don't even know what's, what's wrong. I think that happens probably in different ways. It's, it's just an emotion. And so I, I want to I make sure that that's known. Anger is neutral. It's an emotion. How we respond, that's what we're going to get to today. I don't think we need a Bible story to tell us that anger is, uh, is bad or, or how it plays out. We know. But what's the appropriate response when we have these feelings of anger? When we face injustice or, or violence or conflict? I think a lot of times it, it just comes down to uh, uh, we respond in one of two ways. Either violence or submission. You either fight back, you fight hard, and maybe you fight too long and, and uh, it may not be what, what's, uh, what the appropriate response is, or you just let someone walk all over you. You let the bad happen and you just move on. I think Jesus gives us a third way. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 38 to 42. In just a second, I'm going to read it, and then we'll go through each part. Because I, 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 think, it, I think Jesus spells out um, how we really should respond uh, in, in our anger. He says this, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks, 
and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, when I first read that, I think submission. My two choices were violence or submission, and, and every time uh, when you read these, it, my thought was, okay, Jesus says just submit. I don't think that's what he's saying. He doesn't promote wrath or revenge because of anger, but he doesn't tell us just to take it. I want to talk about what each of these means and how it's not just laying down and letting someone walk all over you. He says, first, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is said to be the oldest law in the world. It's found in the Code of Hammurabi, uh, a king who lived in the 18th century B.C., and it's in the Old Testament three times. The law's original context was a judicial punishment, meaning this is what the judge was going to decide, and, uh, and we have it today as well. It's maximum penalty. It, it, was, it was usually to, to not require eye for eye or tooth for tooth, which I think sometimes we want to do that, but to say, the uh, the crime can't go beyond what the or the punishment can't go beyond the crime, like if I killed your dog, you wouldn't be in the right to come and kill me and my wife, or a judge wouldn't say you killed his dog, so uh, we're putting you to death. Um, that was the the idea behind it. In the ancient world, vengeance was out of control. If you would insult me, I would hit you. If you would hit me, I would cut you. If you cut me, I would stab you. If you stab me, I would stab you and your entire family. I mean, that's, people paid other people to go after others who uh, hurt their family. I mean, it, it, was, it was vengeance. It was, you know, you wanted revenge on it, and you're upset, and you're going you're gonna to get it. And it's still an issue today. And, and the thing is, it's so disproportionate at times. I, I mean, how many of you have seen a headline or uh, read an article about a guy cutting someone else off in traffic, and he shoots him? I mean, it, it really, you could probably just look at the news last week in some different cities, and you'll find that. And so God steps in, and he gives his people a command that's supposed to keep vengeance in check to protect his people. He tells them, eye for eye, a tooth for tooth, meaning that the punishment should not exceed the offense. Now, here, here's, the, here's the thing, because even then, we could look at it and say, well, okay, so that's what had to happen. No, that was, that was the max. It could not go beyond that. It didn't mean that the court had to do that or that you had to do that but it definitely couldn't go, go, couldn't go anymore. But uh, Jesus, Jesus uh, he usually corrects our thinking. And so he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, again, we think, well, if you don't resist an evil person, then that means you just let, let someone beat you up or, or, uh, or make your life worse. No, he's talking about revenge here. It actually means do not retaliate against. It's not protecting yourself. It's, it's not going uh, for revenge. Why not? Because there's a better way. He, he's going to tell us this through the scripture. We're going to see his words. There is a better way to respond to evil and violence than more evil and more violence. We teach our kids this. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, at school, a, a kid gets, um, someone does something that upsets them. You don't say, oh, go do it back. Maybe, maybe we do at times, but do we really think that's the answer? They're both going to get in trouble the same way. But, um, but we don't like to, uh, to do this. We blow up. We blow things out of proportion. Someone does something little to us, so we hold a grudge for a long time, or we try to make their lives really bad. Jesus is telling us to take this, uh, this idea uh, another step, uh, uh, this commitment um, of, of love. He, he's, he's saying, guys, here's what's allowed. Here's what, here's what you are allowed to do legally, but don't. 
don't do it. Specifically, he gives these examples. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, this is an, there's a, a lot in the wording here. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, back then, um, it was only acceptable or appropriate to use your right hand when interacting with other people in any way. It didn't, it, whether I was going to shake your hand or hit you, I could only use my right hand. The reason behind that is because the left hand was used, um, they didn't have toilet paper back then, and, and so their left hand was used for things like that um, to keep yourself, and so it was just, it was not allowed in any way, so use your right hand. Now, if, now, we, now this is perfect because we're facing each other. So if anyone strikes you on your right cheek, if I'm going to hit you on your right cheek, or you're going to hit me on my right cheek, put your hand out and, and see how, how are you going to do that. How are you going to hit me on my right cheek? The only possible way is the backhand. That, that's, that's the only way. So he specifies for a reason. Well, when you backhand someone, it was not to hurt them. It was to humiliate them or put them in their place. It was a, a slave to master thing, or at the time, a husband to wife, or a husband to child, or a Roman to Jew. The intention was just to humiliate them, not to cause uh, uh, serious damage to them. And, and so Jesus says, if someone does that to you, turn your left cheek to them. Now again, this is really important what he's saying, because now if, if you turn your left cheek towards me, or I turn mine to you, and you're going to hit me, or I'm going to hit you, there's only one way I can do it. I can't slap you. Your, your cheek is facing me. I can't backhand you. My hand will slide right, right across. I would have to punch you. That's the only way. Well, fists were only used for equals. And so if I backhand you because I'm better than you, because I have a higher position than you, I'm higher in the, the social status, and, and you turn to your left cheek, the only thing I can do is punch you, I would not punch you. Jesus, was, Jesus knew this. They, they would not do it because what, what I would be doing is saying, well, now you're equal to me. And that's, that's not what he wanted to do. It's not, a, it's not allowing someone to beat you up. It is a nonviolent non form of defiance. It says now that I have self-worth. You have self-worth. He says the exact same thing over and over again. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, this was reserved for the poorest of all people back then. Um, it was they only had the clothes on their back. And the shirt really was the under, their underwear. It was the first thing that they put on. Uh, in the morning, or if they slept there, they probably slept in it, but you know what I'm saying, that was their underwear. Um, they used cloak and tunic in, in, older, uh, in uh, older translations, but for the sake of this, just imagine, the shirt is your underwear. And so it says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your underwear, who's going to sue someone to take their underwear? Why would you want a poor person or any person's underwear? Well, it was another way to humiliate someone. And so, uh, oh, you couldn't, you couldn't take their coat, though, because that was also their blanket at night. And so only if they had made a, a pledge and didn't pay their debt, but almost no times could they actually do that. And so um, what happens is Jesus is saying, if they take your underwear, give them all your clothes. Now, the judge says, hey, this man here, uh, he will now take your underwear. And so instead, instead of going into a, uh, the closet and taking off your underwear and then putting your cloak back on coming out, Jesus says, just strip down and give it all to him. Hand it to him right there. I don't, I don't want to do that, but how comfortable would it be for this man to take your clothes from a naked person? 
Uh, again, it was about honor and status. That's what this all, is all about here. Someone is oppressing someone. Someone is making someone very upset. And it was very dishonorable and undignified to interact in any way in public with a na naked person. And so now the oppressor has to make a choice. He sued for this, but now the person standing there naked. He's not going to take it from him. If he did, he's lowering himself, and he's going to be shamed in public. Again, it was a way to react to oppression without more violence. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Roman soldiers could uh, make a civilian take their gear one mile. I know uh, we probably, you've probably heard that before. If they, if they went further than one mile, the soldiers had a severe punishment. Um, for doing that, it kept the soldiers in check. If the civilian kept going then, like Jesus told them to do, if, if they kept going, then the soldier would actually be in trouble. So the soldier is now chasing the person, trying to get them to stop carrying their gear, because uh, if not, they're in trouble from their bosses. It was humiliation that was shifted once again. The oppressed now takes control of the oppressor. Jesus continued to offer non-aggressive ways uh, to, uh, to counter oppression. Things that make us mad. And on, this, on these uh, examples here, personally, it's not just if someone's upset across the world or I'm mad because of something across the world. Someone's doing something to me that's really humiliating and embarrassing and it makes me really mad. How do I respond? Notice that each move gives the person more than they ask, uh, ask for. Uh, they, they don't destroy, but they open the eyes of the oppressor. What I'm saying is that we can be angry. There are things that we should be angry about, but we can also be part of the solution. How do we, how do we help with this oppression in the world, uh, the injustices, without just trying to say, well, we'll just beat everyone up. We're stronger than they are. It doesn't work that way. That might work for a little while. That's not the way to go. Jesus set the example in that. We don't have to react to violence and oppression with violence and oppression. And he, he finishes, he says this, uh, give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I think maybe what Jesus is trying to say here is don't play favorites. Um, in our anger, we respond to people in different ways. One person might do something uh, that kind of upsets me, and then I respond in one way, and then someone over here does the exact same thing, and I just freak out and I lose my cool. Uh, we, we don't treat everyone the same way. And, and so I think what Jesus is saying is, hey, it doesn't matter who it is. Someone you love, your enemy, this is what you're going to, you're going to treat everyone the same way. And you're going to respond the same way. But Jesus reacted differently because he saw the world different. This is not easy for us. We, can't, we just look around and we see a lot of the bad. It's tough. We see a world of injustice and anger and hatred and violence and there's short supply and life is fragile. But Jesus saw something bigger. He saw a world that he knew would one day be redeemed, a world in which justice was guaranteed. We think, well, maybe, maybe they'll get what they have coming to them. But Jesus believed that there was a, a judgment day in eternity, and God would, be, would make everything right in, some in his time. And if we would do the same, then I think these things start to make sense. On a practical level, someone does something to me, I just want to respond right then. But why don't we? Because it's not as we see it. The, the enemy is, is attacking us and trying to divide us. And people are just getting angrier and angrier uh, from 2007. And probably there was articles just like that written 50 years ago and 100 years ago. And so in order to live this out, we don't change how we should respond. 
uh, but we change how we view people. We change how we view the world. When we start trusting God a little more with the outcome, when we, when we love him and we love people more than ourselves, then we don't allow anger to get the best of us when it really shouldn't. Practically speaking, we do anger all wrong. Thomas Aquinas said there are three main areas in which we respond to anger improperly. We can get angry too easily, he says. We can get angrier than we should, and we can stay angry too long. I think he's just so right on all those. I'd like to add a couple more. I think that we're often angry for the wrong reasons. Uh, we could be angry for good reasons, for sure. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't always, I don't think I often get angry at the injustices in the world. I don't always get angry when I read about human trafficking or domestic violence or poverty. I think I get sad more than anything, um, or I just think oh, that's the way it is, or I don't give it any thought and I just move on to something else. But instead, I save my anger for the bigger stuff, you know, like bad drivers and bad referees and, and people who offend me. I, don't we all, really? I mean, think about the last time you got angry. I mean, really try to, try to do this. Maybe it was uh, uh, right before church on the drive here. Maybe it was last week or two. There's no one that it was two weeks ago. Um, but, but really think about the last thing that upset you. Uh, I, I think we're all in the same boat and we get angry for the same reason. Uh, more than anything else, and it's when we don't get our way. We don't get what we want. We have an expectation that's unfair or unmet, um, but it's what we expect, and if it doesn't happen, here comes the anger. I think we're often angry at the wrong people, uh, you know, the people who are most available uh, to us or who we're allowed to get angry at. Maybe you're at work and your boss is really doing things that it causes that ang anger emotion. I mean, you're full of anger, but you can't explode at work, and so you just take it home, let it out there, the wrong wrong person. Maybe it's the waitress uh, because the cook didn't cook your food right. Um, maybe you've been dealing with a, a two-year-old all day, and then uh, the 10-year-old makes one little mistake, and all that pent-up frustration, you just, you just blow up at the 10-year-old, but it really wasn't about the 10-year-old. Sometimes it just comes out in the wrong, wrong areas. Um, but if you've been a Christian a long time and you've heard this and you've really worked on your self-control, um, then maybe you don't explode. There's a, there's a different way that I think uh, a lot of us could probably um, express our anger in this way. Uh, there was a study by a, a, a lady named Dr. Elshout, and her team quizzed nearly 2,000 people ages 16 to 89, so big difference. And it was about their experience of revenge. Results show that 14% took revenge immediately within a minute, I mean just right away. 36% took up to a week, and 23% between one to four weeks. Now, some 21% hit back between a month and a year later, and around 5% took more than a year to get revenge. Dr. Elshout said our findings suggest that revenge is typically delayed. Revenge acts admitted by participants in this study included infidelity, damaging a car, disclosing secrets, making false accusations, and trying to get someone fired. Other, other ways that were uh, shared in this study included humiliating someone, gossiping, lying, and breaking a promise. Wrath is not always stomping and screaming. When we think of wrath, I think we think of violence and, and someone just exploding. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. It can be bitterness. It can be, uh, it can be jealousy, and, and uh, it could be revenge that happens over the course of, of years. Anger can, can really get the best of us. 
It really can. There's a reason it's listed or wrath in the seven deadly sins. It, 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 can, it can do a lot of damage. And, and the thing is, we can't just fix the, each one. If, if we had a list and we just said, okay, here's how I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to hold a grudge for more than this much time, and I'm not going to get angry at this person or the wrong person. And we could go through a list. That's not what this is about. Jesus changes things, not because we get a, a, a list of rules to follow. If it were that, then we wouldn't need Jesus. We would just have a list and, and, and don't break this rule, and then we're good. No, that didn't work. The wall failed. It, it didn't work in that way. It showed us uh, uh, how bad we actually were. And so Jesus changes things. Not to fix one area at a time, but he teaches us how to, how to love people and what matters most. See, this idea of violence and submission, that wasn't God's way. It, it may look like it, but when you look to the cross, you think Jesus could have, he could have called down an army of angels and killed every one of his, his enemies. Violence. He didn't choose that. He could have submitted. Now, he willingly laid down his life, but he didn't just give up and, and let the bad guy win and do whatever uh, whatever they want, and, and that was it. He intentionally thought through this, or there was a plan in place, and he followed through with that. And, and so how, how do we do it? Our response to anger does not have to be violence or submission. Jesus' sacrifice of himself is a highly proactive move. He demonstrated a way of addressing his enemies that was neither passive nor violent, but restorative and reflecting of God's character. Well, who is God? A loving, a loving God. He loves, he, we love him and we love people as he loved people. And so then when we get angry, whether it's little things or big things, how can we respond to things that make us angry in a way that, like Jesus did, makes things better, has the best interest of everyone in mind, even, even the person that's causing the anger, and reflects the same love that Jesus showed on the cross. So as we go into communion, I want to consider Jesus' anger towards the brokenness of the world. Because you, you think you're mad at, at the way things are. I think Jesus was too. And he did something about it. But he did it in, in a way that only he could do it in saving us. The truth is we can't make everything better. We can't respond in a way that Jesus did because only he was perfect. Only he was perfect in love and truth and goodness and, and not selfish like, like we are. So we follow the example we have something to, to praise in this, uh, um, just this idea of him doing what he could. We have an example in a Savior. And so as we take communion, I just ask that you would consider Jesus being first Lord. I mean, I'm sorry, I messed it up. First Savior, that he did what only he could do. And then as Lord, which means master. So we follow his example and we follow his, his words. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you uh, for uh, the scriptures. Um, just reading uh, uh, this scripture today, uh, it, it can be so challenging to understand uh, how, how we live it out, how we take something um, that was in a context 2,000 years ago and how we live it out today. And so I pray that you would uh, give us wisdom, um, give us diligence to study your word, uh, to uh, to help us to know uh, what it looks like. Um, but even more, I thank you that, uh, that your character was, was revealed uh, through the cross, uh, that uh, even in our emotions, uh, we know that we can respond like you. We can pursue uh, your truth and your goodness and, uh, and love other people more than ourselves. And so I pray this morning uh, that you would guide us all 
as uh, as we go out into a world that may cause a lot of anger, uh, that may build up a lot of frustration, um, but that we see people as you saw us, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We thank you for Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen.